Many of you listen to this podcast because you've heard my story of overcoming personal tragedy and what I've gone on to do since then, creating a successful personal training business, creating this podcast, the whole legendary life idea. Today's guest has an equally powerful story. In fact, this is the most emotional interview I've ever done. His name is Tom Zuba, and his story has been featured on Oprah. He's written a book about his experiences and what he went through and what he was able to create from it. I was reading Tom's book before the interview, and I just couldn't help seeing my story and his story, and it touched me so deeply that I started crying. It was hard to read the pages without bursting into tears, and not that it's a book that is depressing or anything, but I, I finally, for the first time, saw what I felt, what I went through, explained in words in a book I had never seen that before. I had never experienced that before. Now, while Tom's story is powerful and it's moving, Tom's message is a positive one. He believes that grief is not the enemy. Grief is one of our greatest teachers. He believes that the stories we tell ourselves determines whether or not we will heal from whatever adversity we've experienced in our lives. And ultimately, he believes we were all born to be radiant. We were all born to experience joy, passion, and love in life. I give you the story of Tom Zuba. Tom Zuba, thank you so much for being on the Legendary Life podcast today. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Tom, you're a life coach. You're a speaker. You're an author of the book, Permission to Mourn, A New Way to Do Grief. The reason why I asked you to be on the show today is because you have a story that is similar to mine in terms of the loss you've gone through. And I want to choose my words very carefully because you've already called me out on the words that that we use. And we'll get into that and how words have power in doing that. But you're the first person I felt like I could connect with. I don't want to say as an equal, but as someone who understands what I've been through with losing all the people I've lost in my life. And I'll be honest, it's hard to read your book and not tear up, not tear up reading it because I resonate with so much of the story in there. So thank you so much for being here today to not just share your story and how you view grief, but at a personal level, I deeply appreciate it. I am very happy to be here and I am happy to work with you and share my message with as many people as I possibly can. So it's an honor for me to be able to spend this time with you. Yeah. Well, Tom, I don't want to tell your story. Would you please share your story of what you've been through? And then we'll get into your book and how to be happy and all the the other good things. Sure. Absolutely. I'm not even sure if I mentioned this in the book. I think I might, but... The story, as it's connected to the book, actually began when I was six. When I was six years old, my little brother, Daniel Patrick, died. He was just a couple weeks old. He actually died the day after his baptism. I was raised Catholic. And I have a very clear memory, although I don't know if this is true or not, but this is my memory. My memory is that my dad sat me, my older sister Mary, and my little brother Jimmy. So it was Mary, Tommy, Jimmy. My dad sat us on the sofa and said to us, God sent his angels last night, and they took your little brother Daniel Patrick to heaven. 
Now, like I said, Ted, I don't know if my dad said that, but that's my memory. And I remember, number one, being furious, furious at God for a long, long, long time. It's like, how dare you take my little brother to heaven? And I was also afraid because I thought, are you going to send your angels to come and take me? You know, sometime in the night, are they going to come and get me and bring me to heaven? So that's really where this story begins. Fast forward, my wife and I had been married a couple of years, and first child, a beautiful little girl named Erin, was 18 months old. And literally, Erin got sick on a... And we took her to the emergency room the next day on Saturday. And the doc said, she has a kink in her intestine. You know, take her home, give her some Pedialyte, she should be fine. Well, she wasn't fine. She got worse and worse. And Monday morning, we took her to the emergency room where they admitted her. And she continued to get worse. And there was test after test after test. And on Tuesday, they said, we don't know what's the matter with her. We don't know how to treat her. So we're going to send her to the major medical center. We were in the suburbs of Chicago at the time. So I rode in an ambulance with her to Rush Press St. Luke's. And Wednesday morning, she was diagnosed with something called hemolytic uremic syndrome. And I'd never heard of that before. And the doc said, you caught it really early. You know, we know exactly what it is. We know how to treat it. She'll be okay. You know, she will get better. That was Wednesday morning. And that same day at 5, 10 p.m., I'll never forget it, July 18th, 5, 10 p.m., my firstborn child, Erin Brennan Zuba, died. And the only way to describe it is I was immediately thrust into the deepest, darkest, most frightening, indescribable black pit of hopeless despair. And it's one of those things that if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't been there, words don't describe it. Words don't describe it. People said to me, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you will get better. Things will get back to normal. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. I couldn't for the life of me figure out how there could possibly be a light at the end of the tunnel. A year later, my wife and I had another baby. Our son Rory was born. In fact, Rory, believe it or not, was due on the date that our daughter died. Rory's due date was July 18th. And my wife said, no way, you know, no way am I having a baby on that date. And she didn't. Rory was born on July 24th, you know, like a week later. And then four years later, our son Sean was born. My hope was, after Aaron died, I wanted to figure out a way to be content. You know, I thought if I could just be content with life, that would be okay. And I came to a point where I was content. And then I wanted to be happy. And I did find happiness. And then I thought, I wonder if I could have moments of joy. I wonder if I could. And I did. I did. So when Sean was born... Our life was kind of normal. You know, people talk about this new normal. That's what I wanted. Sean's birth was a normal, uneventful, you know, we had a baby, you know, no big deal. A huge deal, but it was normal. So, you know, life moved on. Things were pretty darn good. My wife and I had our own business. In the fall of 98, my beautiful, perfectly healthy 43-year-old wife turned to me and she said, I think there's something the matter with me. You know, I just don't feel right. And she had tests after tests after tests with the doctor and everything came back fine. Everything came back positive. And that fall, she started wearing her father's sport coat. She adored her dad, and he had died a couple of years before. Now, this is a professional businesswoman working in downtown Chicago who's wearing this corduroy jacket with those leather, you know, patches on the sleeves. Right. 
I remember turning to her and saying, what the heck are you doing? I mean, you look ridiculous. She said, you know, I feel my dad all around me. I feel like I can pull this look off. And then um, maybe a month passed and she started to wear his raincoat. And I said, Trish, you have lost it. She said, no, you know, coats like this are in style. I can get away with this. And in December, she started drinking out of a mason jar. She would drink water out of a mason jar like her dad did. And I didn't say anything, but I thought something is going on here. And about two weeks before Christmas, she turned to me and she said, there's two songs I want at my funeral. Go, Lassie, go, and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I said, I do not know why you're telling me. I'm going first. You know, if you want those songs, tell someone who's going to be there, because I'm not going to be there. And a couple of days after Christmas, we were driving in the car. She turned to me and she said, there's two songs I want at my funeral. Go, Lassie, go. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. She said, even if it's in the summer, I want those two songs. I said the same thing. I'm going first. And literally, a week later, I was planning her funeral. My wife died on January 1st of 1999, New Year's Day, really, really suddenly. The next day would have been our daughter's 10th birthday. Trish died from something called a protein C deficiency. It was hereditary. We didn't know, we didn't know that she had it. Had we known, she would have been um, some type of a blood thinner. So two things. One is her death was so unbelievably, catastrophically explosive to me that on some level I knew it wasn't a mistake and I knew it wasn't random. And my prayer was, I want to be surrounded by people that are wiser than me and I don't want to waste this. I don't want to waste this. Now, my kids were three and seven. So on New Year's Day, I had to tell them that their mommy had died. And for the second time, I mean, I, oh, Lord have mercy. I mean, I very quickly went into that deep, dark, black, hopeless pit of despair. I thought, there is no way I'm going to figure out how to climb out of this. Not a second time. But over time, and, and a long time, I clawed my way out. I clawed and clawed and clawed my way out. And the way I describe it is the second time I knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel. So that changed the experience, although by no means did it make the experience easier. It wasn't. It was not easier. So you know, life continued to unfold. And as the years passed, I found myself at a new normal again. I really, really did. I loved being a father and a mother to both of my kids. I was really proud of myself. Life was good. It was really, really good. And in 2004, the summer of 2004, my son Rory was 13. And two days after seventh grade, I heard something in the middle of the night. And it was as if there was this force that pushed me into his room. And I couldn't tell what was happening. He was either having a stroke or a seizure. But I called 911. And for the third time, I'm, I'm in the ambulance, you know, going to the hospital with someone I love. And the MRI showed that he had a hot spot on his left temporal lobe. And they weren't sure, you know, what that was about. So... I got to take him home. I got to take him home. And that was the first time I left the hospital with a living human being. So I was really, really grateful. You know, and I thought, I thought, you know, we can do this. I actually thought, well, this is interesting because I, all along I knew I was going to write a book and I thought this is the perfect ending to my book. You know, my daughter dies, my wife dies, my son has the seizure, but he recovers. Oh, great. You know, what a hope-filled, wonderful ending to the book. Well, Rory was misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed in Rockford, my hometown, and at, at Children's Memorial in Chicago. 
And finally, in November, he had a biopsy, a brain biopsy, because they couldn't figure out if this hot spot was getting bigger or smaller or staying the same. And the biopsy turned into major brain surgery. The um, surgeon after surgery said, Mr. Zuba, we had to remove his entire left temporal lobe. He has a glioblastoma. It's a terminal cancer. You know, he will not recover. So I listened to them. I listened to them. And I decided I wasn't going to do chemo or radiation because they didn't offer me any hope. And, you know, I thought, I wonder if, you know, if I set the intention, you know, use the law of attraction, use visualization, I wonder if I can create a community that can actually cure this kid. You know, I wonder if we change our thoughts, if we use enough affirmations. I mean, I dove deep into, you know, what back then we called the New Age movement. I took him to Houston. I took him to Seattle. We did Reiki, acupuncture, crystal bowls. Um, I let the Catholic priest anoint him. I had ashes from India, holy water from Medjugorje, from Lourdes. People took his photograph to John of God in, in South America. I did absolutely everything. And you know what, Ted? I couldn't keep him alive. The kid... In spite of everything I did, Rory died on February 22nd, 2005. Ah, so for the third time, I'm in this deep, dark. I was so angry. I was so angry. I remember laying in the hospital bed that last night with him. He was on a ventilator. My wife had been on a ventilator. I knew, I know what that means. You know, you disconnect him from the ventilator and he dies. I knew that. I'm in the bed with him, and I'm screaming at God. You cannot have him. You cannot have him. And I was saying to my wife, Trish, if you are here, get away. He is mine. You cannot have him. He died anyway. He died anyway. So I'm thrust into that deepest, darkest, blackest, hopeless pit of despair. And this time, that tunnel, that tunnel was actually lit and I became a participant and an observer in the process. And my mantra was, if I get out of this, I am going to take the knowledge, the tools, the wisdom that I gain, and I'm going to make a difference in the world because I don't want one other person to have to go through what I have gone through. That, that was 2005, 2006, 2007. It took me 10 years to write this book, 10 years. But I'll, I'll tell you, when I wrote it, I was ready to write it because this book flowed out of me in a very short period of time. It's about divine timing. So in a really, really brief, tiny little nutshell, that's what brings me to this point. Yeah, I tell you, such such a crazy story of loss and uh and seeing how you tried to do everything especially for Rory spending all that time it's very different from what i experienced because what i had gone through is much more sudden but i you know i hear that and and i i still see my story in yours and anyone who's listening will, like you said, if you've been through something, I'm going to use the word tragic <laughs> and we'll get to that, the power words later, but you know, you know how that feels. People ask me this as if I've, if I'm like, you know, a hundred percent in on top of the world and, and have overcome everything I've been through, but you know, it's a, still a process for me. What I want to ask you is, I know people always ask me like, oh, you got through it. You overcame it. What did you do? What were the steps? And like you said, it was a 10 year process. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that 10 year period? Some of the things you tried that didn't work, some of the things that worked and what ultimately led you to the place where you're at today, where you're helping people overcome grief and, and mourning in a new way. Absolutely. But let me preface it by saying this. 
for me, healing is not a destination. I don't think I'm going to arrive at a day when I say, hallelujah, you know, I'm healed from all of this. For me, I'm okay with the fact that now healing is a way of being for me in the world every single day. My hope, my prayer is that I will heal a little bit more every day until I finish all the work I have to do on this earth and I leave my body. That's how I think it's going to unfold for me. I never say there's a right way to do it or there's a wrong way. I don't. I think for me, there's a healthy way and there's an unhealthy way. For me, there's a way that creates peace and there's a way that creates pain. So that's how I differentiate. And the subtitle of the book is A New Way to Do Grief. Okay, well, tell us about the old way to do grief. How do I know what the old way to do grief is? That's what I did at first, particularly after Aaron died. Why? That's what everybody does. I mean, everybody does grief what I call the old way. What we do is we deny, we suppress, and we pretend as many of our feelings and emotions as we possibly can. We have to do that in order to survive day to day to day. Most of us, we get three days off of work. We have to go back to work. Yeah. You know, your mother dies, your partner, your spouse, your child dies. Three days later, you're going back to work. The only way you can survive is to pretend. And the rest of the community, they want us to pretend. You know, they, <laughs> so they're, true. they're hoping that we're fine. They want us to be fine. So we create this vicious circle. And when we're home at night, you know, in the quiet, maybe right before we put our head on our pillow, reality comes crashing in. You know, all those feelings, all those emotions. And what most people do is we figure out a way to go numb. That might be a sleeping pill. That might be a glass of wine. That might be working 24-7 or shopping or overeating or... Uh, now, you know, being obsessed with Facebook or computer games. So we will do whatever we possibly can to make sure we feel absolutely nothing. That's the old way to degree. That's the old way to degree. That's what I did. And I realized that that was just creating pain on top of pain on top of pain for myself. I thought there's got to be another way. You know, there's got to be another way. So I read as much as I possibly could. I tried to find teachers out there that really, really resonated with me. I acknowledge and thank and honor six or seven of them in the beginning of my book. And I wrestled with all of these, Ted, all of these. It took me a long, long, long time to kind of surrender to a lot of this, but a huge wake up for me. I was living in California at the time, and a friend of mine said, there's this new author, this guy named Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. He has this book called The Power of Now. You got to read it. You know, all right, fine. So I picked it up. And I'm not going to quote him exactly, but he says something like, when you resist what is, you are waging war with life. I highlighted that. I was living in California, raising my two kids. I hated every moment of my life. I hated the fact that I was still breathing. I hated the fact that I had to raise my kids. I hated all of it. I thought, this really, really speaks to me. How the heck do I figure out how to stop waging war with my life? That was a real beginning for me. I had also, I write about this, a huge, huge impact on my life. Following my wife's death was Gary Zukov's book, The Seed of the Soul. That had a huge impact on me. And that's and, what got you onto Oprah as well, reaching out to him, right? Yes, 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 yes. And one of the things that he suggested, and this really resonated with me before my wife died, what Gary suggested in the book was that 
agreements had been made between my soul, my wife's soul, my daughter Aaron's soul that included her leaving her physical body at 18 months. And that was revolutionary to me, you know. But a part of me thought, oh, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that's true. And what my wife always said after Aaron died was, we're going to celebrate her life. She only lived 18 months, but she lived a full life. She was never going to be 19 months. She was never going to be two years old. We're going to celebrate the life that she lived here. She lived a full life. Well, when my wife died at 43, I heard her words in my head. We're going to celebrate Trisha's full life. She was never going to be 45. She was never going to be 50. Now, again, it was a, I, I wrestled with all of that. I wrestled with all of that. But deciding, it's, it's a choice. It's a choice. Deciding to believe those kinds of things helped me create a much more peaceful life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And we have to make meaning out of it somehow, whether it's on our own or through learning ideas, philosophies from others. Tom, I want to go back to what you said about, it, it's a chapter in your book called The Secret Is Out. And I've been wanting to tell this story or have someone tell this story or share this story with someone because I lost my mother when I was 14. I lost my brother when I was 19. But, and, and like you had mentioned, you had experience already, so you kind of knew what to do. You saw the light at the end of the tunnel, is what you had said. And when my sister committed suicide a few years ago, I did see the light at the end of the tunnel, although uh, in many ways that losing her was, I just had ex always taken for granted the fact that we would probably go, grow old together. But after she killed herself, instead of grieving, instead of trying to heal, instead of all that, I became really worried about what I had created for myself business-wise. I was training clients. Everybody knew about what had happened to my sister because it was in the news, because my brother was in the news when it happened. It, it's a very well-known story here in Miami, what happened to my brother. And the media picked up on my sister's suicide, made it a big thing. My clients found out I wasn't going to make a big deal out of it. I had to go back to work and pretend like I was fine. And because I knew that if I showed up crying, if I talked about it too much, if I brought too much negativity or uh, sadness or whatever, I was afraid I was going to lose my business and put myself into even a worse situation. Having been broken spiritually, emotionally, but also losing my business financially. So what I did was I sucked it up and I went to work. People were like, whoa, you're amazing. You're fine. You, you are so strong, Ted. And the fact was, it was all driven out of fear. I'm not, I, like we hopped on before we started recording, you know, I've been telling you, I, I was tearing up reading your book and uh, it brought me to, to tears. And you said, it's natural to do that. I would like to explore that more, but I've always been that way. But for that time in my life, I sucked it in hard and just pushed it down so I wouldn't experience loss financially in addition to everything else that was going on. When you had to, like you had mentioned in the story just now, you had gone back to work after three days. What do you tell people about how to get through that period where you have to go and do that. How do we get through it? And someone listening right now maybe hasn't gone through what you have or what I have, but there's divorces. There's people who've had divorces, bankruptcies, all types of things happen that bring us to this point of grief. Can you just talk a little bit more about that period of time and, and what you did and how looking back, what you would recommend other people to do? Yes, I will. You're absolutely right that my experience is the death of my daughter, my wife, and my son. But everything we're talking about is a, 
applicable with so many other type of life situations. You get a divorce. Your house goes into foreclosure. You get fired from your job. You're losing your health. You're getting old. We, I define grief as the internal automatic response to loss. Grief is what happens inside of us. And every single human being is grieving every single day. So our number one job is to take really, really great care of ourselves. And when I'm working with large groups of people, I usually say, men do a great job of this. I mean, most men, we really do know how to take care of ourselves. And I use the example, it's like, we know where the remote control is. You know, we're going to grab it. You know, we're going to switch the station when we want. Most women take care of the entire universe. And the message that they've received is that it's selfish, it's self-centered if they focus on themselves. But when someone we love dies or when we experience any huge traumatic loss, our number one job is to take care of ourselves. And many times, the best way for me to care for myself is to put up a temporary wall you know, to shield and protect myself. And as long as I know I'm doing that, and a lot of times we have to do that when we go back to work. I don't want to be vulnerable. You know, I don't want to be raw. I want to get through. I have no problem with that. As long as we balance that with time for work, after work, that is devoted towards healing. We have to consciously make the decision to heal. And we can heal when we create what I call a safe, sacred space. And in the safe, sacred space, the description is deceptively simple. When I'm in the safe, sacred space, I get to feel every feeling and every emotion. The feelings and emotions that I've labeled good and the ones I've labeled bad. Positive, negative appropriate, inappropriate. I get to feel all of it. In the space, I know I am loved and lovable. That is so rare to feel, to really, really believe every single piece of me is loved and lovable. By who? By me first. Right. By me first. And then the third criteria is, this is what everyone yearns for. We all want to be seen and heard and honored exactly where we are. So if we have to pretend all day long and we have 20 minutes, 30 minutes at the end of the day in this safe, sacred space where we can sit in a chair and exhale and be with ourself, then that gives us the opportunity to mourn. In order to heal, we have to mourn. And mourning is when we identify that grief all the stuff that's inside of us, and we push it up and we get it out. We push it up and get it out. It's step one, it's steps two, it's step three, it's step four. But it's so rare anymore. It's so rare that we can find a safe, sacred space for ourselves. So what I say to people is, you have to create it for yourself. And then if you can identify one or two other people that you really trust to bring into that space, that's what you do. In my experience, healing, it, it's very solitary. I mean, it's a, often a lonely, you know, slow journey that we take by ourselves. And when we identify people, when we recognize people that kind of get it, you know, that's a huge blessing and we welcome them. But in the end, the only person that can heal me is me. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because this is contrary to what a lot of people say and what a lot of people believe. For me, grief has been probably my greatest teacher, my greatest teacher. Grief teaches us many, many, many things based on the choices we make. For me, grief has taught me to be kinder, more gentle, more patient, more compassionate, more understanding, more open. But for a lot of other people that do grief the old way, grief has taught them to be bitter, angry, hopeless, 
resentful, you know, closed off. Who do we want to become? Who do I want to become? I really, really believe this. The, the death of someone we love, it's on the back of my book. It's our invitation to become the person we were born to become. That's huge. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. As much as, as much as I would not want to ever feel the way I felt when I lost my loved ones, my family, it has been, as Joseph Campbell calls, a call to ad- adventure, a call to live a better life and to face those fears where, uh, you know, for a long time, we, or at least me, I tried to drown out the feelings with alcohol, drugs, all types of things. And the problem was it never made a change. I would always have to go back the next day, do more, do something else. And there was no, it didn't create that empathic person that you're talking about. The more, the person who understands the world better, understands people better, understands that we're all connected and kinder and yeah, I agree with that so much from my own experience. I, I want to talk about something you said where, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like getting a bit emotional here. I want to talk about the solitary, talking about having to do this on our own because I found that to be true as well. And sometimes we try to put ourselves in groups of people. We try to perhaps rely on a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever, a friend. And for me, it was, I need to make alone time and create that space. And that's why I was grateful for your book because sometimes I can't get the emotions out. They're stuck from being pushed down so often that I need to look for things to bring them out and I want to be alone when I do it. For someone who's maybe uncomfortable going there and feeling the feelings and they're like you had said, especially for men who are taught today like, oh, feelings are bad, you're weak if you cry, anything like that. What can you tell that person who is running away from that solitary moment where they can address how they feel. The message that most of us get is to stay really, really busy. Right. To keep our mind off of it. I always love that because it is the person that you love that died. And there's no way you can keep your mind (laughs) off of it. Um, But we're told, stay busy, keep your mind off of it. And I say, go ahead and do that. You know, try that. And let me know, to quote Dr. Phil, you know, it's like, how's that working for you? (laughs) You know, that that is going to catch up with you. That is going to create pain on top of pain on top of pain, as you discover, as I discover. It's the old way of doing grief. When I work with groups of people, I say healing occurs in the present moment. It's the only place that healing can occur. doesn't occur in the past. doesn't occur in the future. And when someone we love dies, we spend an incredible amount of time either in the past or in the future, not in the present. Why? Because it's too painful. Yes, it is. It's really, really painful. So what I say is, we're going to take 60 seconds and you're going to sit in your chair and you're going to allow the chair to hold you. You know, you don't need to be tight and stiff. You can exhale and relax. This chair will hold you. And for 60 seconds, we're going to focus on your breath in and out, in and out. And people say, is this meditation? You know, I'm like, I don't care what you call it. You know, this is, we're going to be really, really present with ourselves. And inevitably, four seconds will go by. And, and in your head, it will be, oh, my foot hurts. You know, why did I wear these shoes today? 
Go back to the breath. Akamai didn't have breakfast. They shut back to the breath. We're going to focus on the breath for 60 seconds. For many, many people, at the end of that exercise, number one, they say, that seemed like it was six hours. Couldn't have been 60 seconds. That was so frightening. That terrorized me. You know, the thought of being with myself for 60 seconds. But that's where it begins. The only way I'm going to be able to work on my healing is if I'm willing to encounter myself. You know, I have to connect with who I really am. And what I also say to people is, if you believe that the person you love continues to exist like I do, if you believe that the essence of who we are is eternal, and you are looking for that person, it is in the silence, particularly initially, that that person will be able to come through and, and make their presence known. And for a lot of people, that's enough. They're like, okay, you know, then I will try it. So that's where it starts. It's, it's me being with me, focusing on my breath, and paying attention to whatever it is that comes up. For most people, if we were to say, how are you feeling? You know, how are you feeling? Most people don't have a clue. They'll say, fine. You know, not too bad. Angry. You know, especially men. <laughs> you know, fine. Fine. Women sad. Right. Most people don't have a clue how they're feeling. So true. And Tom, you said something earlier about getting over grieving and how you need to take care of yourself first. And we're Facebook friends and I've seen you put up pictures of you doing exercise. Is that what you mean? Or exercising? Uh, I know you mentioned the mindfulness exercise that you talked about, but physical exercise, eating well, what did you mean by taking care of yourself? Thank you for bringing that up. Let me say this. I do not post those pictures. The, the, the trainer who owns the gym, where I work at, he posts those pictures. That's part of it. For me, I work out like a dog five or six days a week. That is therapy for me. I mean, I'm one of those people, people laugh at me. I grunt. I make noises. I get as much of the stress that's inside of me out as I possibly can. So, yes, for me, that is part of it. I do think that there's value in physical exercise. I say to folks, after my son Rory died, I committed to walking every single day. And with every step I took, I would say, I am healing. I am healing. I am healing. Especially on those days when I did not believe I was healing, and I didn't believe healing was possible. But I wanted to set that intention. In the first year after Rory died, I had a standing massage with a massage therapist and a Reiki master every Thursday, 10 a.m. That was huge. That was one of the ways I cared for myself. For me now, I mean, it's been 11 years since Rory died. Do I pay attention to what I eat? You bet I do. I absolutely do. Back then, did I? No. Back then... If it tasted good, I shoved it into my mouth. You know, that was a way for me to numb, you know, numb, 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 numb. When I talk about self-care, it's, it's comprehensive. I mean, one of the things that's really, really important is forgiveness. You know, am I able to forgive myself for being exactly who I am? You know, for eating a whole row of Oreos one night. You know, <laughs> can I forgive myself? For that can I forgive myself because there's people in my life I can't forgive yet you know I'm still really really pissed off at them you know can I be gentle and loving and kind to myself one of the things that you alluded to is I really really do believe that words have power the words that come out of my mouth they create my experiences I am done feeling pain. I don't want to feel any more pain. And I certainly don't want to feel self-created pain. Sure. So when I say I lost my daughter, I lost my wife, I lost my son, 
that makes me really sad. If I thought I lost them, I did. I lost my dog on New Year's Day this year. For 12 hours, I was in a freaking panic. When we lose something we love, it stirs up all these feelings and emotions in us. And most of us will do whatever we need to do until we find that. And then we can exhale and be at peace again. I know where my daughter is. I know where my wife is. I know where my son is. They are not lost. I did not lose them. That's a conscious choice I make. Why? Because I want to feel peaceful. You know, we, we talk about the word tragic. If, if, I, if I thought that my, my wife's death, my son's death, my son died from brain cancer. If I thought his death, my daughter, if they were these tragic, you know, horrible, you know, inexplicable, unforgivable events, I'm creating more layers of pain for myself. Step back. My life's fascinating. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, it's like, you've got to be kidding. It's breathless. It's speechless. What can I learn from it? So, it, you know, that's a long way of saying, when I talk about self-care, it's many, many, many layered. This is another thing that I, I know this is true, and this comes from Byron Katie, whose work I love. Whenever I feel pain, you know, whenever I feel pain, if I'm able to identify the belief that I'm holding on to that's causing that pain, then I can make a choice to shift the belief. One of the beliefs out there is parents shouldn't bury their children. Right. It is so unnatural for a parent to bury their child. And I say to people, up until the turn of the century, 50% of children under the age of 12 dying, 50%. It's not unnatural for parents to bury children. It's the way that it has always been. So I choose not to believe that. That brings me peace. So when I'm experiencing pain, if I can figure out what the belief is, then I can make the choice to change that belief or not. You know, Rory was 13. Commonly held belief is he died too soon. Right. I was robbed. The world was robbed. Those are all painful beliefs. Yeah. And the, I had an idea of what you meant by words have power. But now I really think I understand. And one of the things you had mentioned that I think we've lost complete, we, we've just been disconnected from the way human life has been where 50% of children under 12, did you say, yes. died in a certain period in history. And someone else was telling me that as well. And, and I said, the, the perspective that I have now is that you look at what we go through in modern life here, and I've, I haven't lost some people, but some people... <laughs> I'm working on my word choice now after talking to you, but I, some of my loved ones have died and they ask like, Oh, do you ever ask why you, right? I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you've had that one too, Tom. And I say, look around at the world, look at what's happening in Africa, what happened in Serbia and Bosnia, what, you know, what's happening in the middle East. We're living in such a like a utopia compared to the rest of the world in 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 the United States and in other developed countries what else can you say to help provide perspective for anyone listening who is really focused on that experience that they've had the the death of a loved one the divorce the bankruptcy whatever it is to help them understand that this is just the the imperfect journey of human beings through life that has always kind of been this way and it's kind of the best it's ever been now. Okay, I, I want to preface it by saying there is not a right way and there's not a wrong way. I am not telling anyone how to do it. I am sharing with folks how I do it. This makes sense for me. 
If it resonates for you, with you, hallelujah. Einstein said, one of the most important decisions we'll ever make, do we live in a kind, compassionate, supportive universe? Or is the universe random, chaotic, up for grabs? The choice you make colors absolutely everything. What if you believed that in every moment, life happens for you? doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. Are you kidding me, Tom? You're telling me that my 18-month-old daughter died for me? My 43-year-old wife died for me? My 13-year-old I am. I am. Who would you be if you believed that? You use the word imperfect. What if it's perfect? What if life is unfolding perfectly? In that first chapter of my book, I say there are what I call life's fundamental questions. And when someone we love dies, or when, when anything catastrophic happens to us, in order to make peace with our life, we have to ask and answer these questions. Is there a God? I don't care what you call it. Is there a force? Is there a higher power? I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Is there a God? I'm going to use that word. If there is, I don't care who you think it is. I'm more interested in what you think it is. What do you think God is? <laughs> and what role did this thing we call God play in the death of your loved one, in your divorce, in your losing your job, you know, in your house burning down? Now, where was God in all of that? Those, the way that you answer those questions will determine whether or not you find peace or if you continue to, you know, marinate, roll around in pain. But I, I firmly believe it, Tim. That's what this is about. It's like, do you want to wake up or do you want to stay asleep? You want to wake up? I firmly, firmly believe. And, and this I'm taking right from Gary Zukav's book, The Seed of the Soul, that, that, on a soul level, okay, to your question, why me? Why did this happen to me? On a soul level, not the personality called Tom, not who you're looking at and who you're talking to, because I have no memory of that. But on a soul level, I believe I chose this. I chose this with my wife, with my daughter, with my son, and with my living son, Sean. We chose this. This was the perfect path for us. I'm not a victim. Nothing is accidental. Nobody did anything to me. I'm lucky in that I know exactly why I came to this earth. I know exactly why I came to share this message. That's a blessing to me. And I also believe I will always be in relationship with the people that I love that have died. I have a fluid, ever-changing relationship with my daughter, my wife, and myself. I'm not doing this by myself. I didn't write that book by myself. We are a team. They are much more powerful than I am. Much more powerful. For some reason, you know, I was the representative that said, I'll stay on earth. You guys work through me. I'll stay on earth. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I really like that a lot. It's taken me for a long time. I hear in, in you the, the wisdom, the experience, all the work that you've done. And now you understand why you're here. I feel like I'm just beginning to understand. I know it has to do with helping people. I know it has to do with sharing my story. I know it has to do with some other things, but I don't know what the clear message is, but I'm on the path. What can you say to someone who isn't on the path yet, who ha hasn't answered that call to a better life, to adventure, and they're still victim, they feel like a victim. They're still using the words that you just so eloquently said here, create more pain. And perhaps they believe that the universe is not a good place and that God either doesn't exist, doesn't care, or took the loved ones or created the bad situation, what would you say to that person to help them get on the path? One thing I would say is where you are right now is so familiar to me because I have been there. I mean, I have been there. 
But keep in mind, my daughter died in 1990. I have been doing this. I've been working this for a long, long, long time. When my son, Rory, died in 2005, 11 years ago, I didn't even want to have a funeral. I didn't want to write an obituary. As I said, I was so furious that he died. People said, you know, we'll have a celebration of life. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, we will not. So they kind of took me kicking and screaming, and we did have a memorial service. But at the 10th year anniversary, I was ready to celebrate. I was ready to celebrate the fact that he came here. I'm so grateful that he came and that I got to be his father while he was here on earth. So on the 10th anniversary, I had this event and I called it 10 years later. And I have a video of the presentation that I gave and it's 10 things that I've learned over the last 10 years. So the first thing I would say to this audience that you asked me to address is, it's called 10 Years Later. You can find it on my website, tomzuba.com. Watch that video. But, but this, is one of, this is one of the things that I've learned. And this is relatively new. I mean, over maybe the last like two, two and a half years, I believe there's this optimal version for our life. We came here, every single one of us, to live this glorious, glorious life. But everyone has free will. If every single person that we ever met said yes, then we would just beeline it to this glorious life. But I don't say yes in every moment. And certainly the people that I encounter, many people say no. So that optimal life, it's like a kaleidoscope. Whenever someone says no, it changes a little bit. It changes a little bit. It's not less glorious. It's not less optimal, but it's changing. So what's required is, I go back to silence. We have to create silence for ourselves. We must. If it's out in nature or if, I mean, I'm looking through these beautiful windows right now. If somehow we can create, we can connect in silence with nature, that's a beautiful setting. And we just, just, it's an understatement, we ask the question, why did I come? What am I here for? What is my mission? And then the hard part is to listen, to listen, to listen. This is what happens. We'll get a hint of what our mission is. We'll be able to see a part of that glorious picture, and immediately our brain will say, that's ridiculous. That's not it. You're not good enough for that. You don't deserve that. That could never, ever happen. That's the way that it works. But but it's about learning to listen and really, really trust our intuition. As I said, I, I knew intuitively I was supposed to write a book. I knew intuitively that Gary Zukoff was going to write the foreword of the book. I held on to that for 10 years. Never let go of it. So it's like, it's like I reeled it in. I reeled it in. I reeled it in. I reeled it in. It's every human being connecting with something that's greater than us and trying to figure out, you know, how do I have a conversation with that which is, that which knows all. I mean, it's me. It's me, essentially. All the answers that I need, they're all inside of me. Yeah, so true. I agree with you so much. And like you said, the hardest part is listening. And for a long time, even when I first started doing this show, I would look at certain guests and look at how they might be a strategic choice for this podcast. And didn't really, I mean, it was okay. It wasn't bad, but now I only look for people that I connect with, that I li- the voice inside of me says, this is the right thing to do. And you're saying we need to take time and consult that voice inside of this that knows all the answers about all the things we need to do in every situation and listen to it. And trust it. And, and trust, trust it. it. And, and a lot of times that, 
demands that we're vulnerable, you know, that we take risks, that we put ourselves out there. And it's about building a history, building a history of, oh, yeah, you know, that did work out. That did work out. That did work out. So I'm going to continue to trust it. Yes. Yes. Life is happening for us. Life is happening. Not one human being came to this earth to suffer. That is not why we were born. <laughs> but we all have free will. Look around. I mean, there are many people that are suffering every single day and will continue to suffer. That's not why we came here. We came here to live these, these wonderful, you know, fulfilling lives of service and connection. That's why we came. You know what? In a nutshell. We came to love and be loved, period. That's why we came. I love it. So, Tom, this is such a great conversation. I've learned so much from you. And if you're listening right now, if you want to know more about Tom and what he teaches, and you're going through something that you need a new perspective on how to do grief, Tom is your man. So make sure you go to TomZuba.com. That's T-O-M-Z-U-B-A.com. I'll have that link in the show notes. I'll have the link to Tom's book, Permission to Mourn, in the show notes. I'll also put up the video that you mentioned, Tom. It'll be in the show notes as well. The last thing I want to ask you is I feel like listening to you, it's so obvious that what you've been through, it's like you said, you chose this. This is, you know what you're here to do and you're doing it. I feel like I'm, I'm finding my purpose. I'm making the difference. I'm on my path as well. What about the people who maybe haven't had these big events in their life where they've had loved ones die and they feel like, well, you know, I'm not happy, but I don't have this, for lack of a better word, this big story, this glorious story about, about dead loved ones and then overcoming and then finding my, my path. Do people need to have some sort of, I was about to say tragic, but I'm, I'm catching myself, Tom. Do they need a big event? to use this and to find what they're here for. I sure hope not. I sure hope not. I mean, I kind of jokingly say, I must be a really, really slow learner. It's like, I didn't get it after my daughter. I didn't get it after my wife. Okay, my son's dead. Now I finally got it. No, I don't think so at all. I think, unfortunately, the human condition is until the pain that we're in is so excruciatingly intolerable, we don't change. That's, that's true for most human beings. It doesn't have to be that way. No, I mean, I would love to work with a group of people who, you know, would say, you know, nothing big going on, you know, everything's kind of <laughs> cool, you know, we're just kind of coasting, coasting, coasting. Okay, you know, how do we go deeper? You know, how do you create more for your life? And I would suggest, based on my experience, it's being of service. It's being of service to other human beings that, that makes us have a purpose that helps us feel fulfilled. Happiness is fleeting. I would love to get a new Lexus. I really, really would. But I am smart enough to know. After 10 days go by, it's no big deal. <laughs> so you know, true, it's, yeah. it's no big deal. Okay, so, so I would much rather experience joy. You know, joy. What is joy? And for me, joy is being in the presence of that, what, what I consider divine. You know, this hour with you, for me, is joy-filled. This is real. This is life. You know, this is energy. There's this, this is it. This is it, okay? For someone, maybe it's painting. For someone, it's music. For someone, it's cooking. For someone, it's gardening. For someone, it's raising their children. I love, you know, once I stopped 
waging war with my life, I loved being a mother and a father to my kids. It's like, what is juicy for you? What helps you come alive? Tom Suba, powerful words, powerful advice. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your wisdom, and most importantly, your time with us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. It's my honor.